0: Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nate Sager. It's a first. Today on Sports Lit, our focus is on a children's book. And if you're formulating an idea, don't, because it's probably not what you think. Canadians have been blessed with beloved and intelligent works aimed at kids, like Brian McFarland's Peter Puck series, which was released starting in 1975, and of course, Rock Carrier's Opus from 1979, the hockey sweater, which painted two solitudes in such a compelling and thoughtful manner. For lack of a better way to put it, there was a weight to it. It could be appreciated on many different levels across different age groups. And that's what brings me to the Ice Chip series and our guest today, author Roy McGregor. Roy McGregor was once described by the Washington Post as the closest thing to a poet laureate of Canadian hockey. For his writing, he has received multiple accolades, including the Elmer Ferguson Memorial Award as an inductee into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2012, and as well as the Order of Canada seven years earlier in 2005. So yeah, a children's book. Ice Chips is a fictional youth hockey team, the Riverton Ice Chips, that can travel back in time through the work of a Zamboni named Scratch, or as the McGregors accurately call it, an ice resurfacing machine. The team is a diverse cast of characters, which includes a young Sikh kid named Ekam Jeet Singh, nicknamed Edge, and Swift, a female goalie with a prosthetic limb. Alex Stepanov and Crunch both come from immigrant families that speak a language other than English to each other. Their adventures have allowed them to meet a young Gordie Howe and Sidney Crosby, as well as witness the Calgary Winter Olympics 32 years ago. The book provides intrigue on two fronts, through what I would call active pro, uh, an active prose lesson in Canadian history, and um, using the, which uses political license, and also a contemporary spin, which is a comment on the current state of minor hockey in Canada, in some way at least. The main character, Lucas Finnegan, is portrayed as what we might assume to be a lower middle-class kid, um, and you know he, ha- he, used he uses hand-me-down equipment. And the villains are those that uh, push the business of minor hockey, the business of minor hockey, hockey for profit, my kid to the pros or bus type. And that's uh, portrayed in the form of the Blitz family, Coach Blitz and his children, Jared and Beatrice. Uh, the most recent installment of Ice Chips, The Stolen Cup, was just released in February. And, um, of course, uh, I should mention Roy uh, has written this al- along with his daughter, Carrie, and uh, there are great illustrations by uh, Kim Smith. And so today, he's going to join us. But Nate, of course, you've uh, long been a fan of Roy, and I want to hear what you have to say.
1: Yeah, this was, uh, obviously, Roy McGregor's now retired from the Globe and Mail, had his column there for many years in the Ottawa Citizen. Uh, Written uh, an award-winning wilderness writer, has collaborated with Ken Dryden. Uh, We're going to get into his hockey novel the last season which is something i've revisited so many times it's probably one of the five i would say five novels i've spent the most time with as an adult like it's on my kindle app i'll start scrolling through it uh in terms of this this was obviously as guys who don't have children uh, <laughs> this was probably our first none exp- that i know about yeah, but yeah that none acknowledged <laughs> yeah the the this was our first exposure to the ice chip series. And so we got to see how, what works and what Roy McGregor and Carrie McGregor are, are trying to convey wave through, you know, writing to a young audience of kids who were like nine, 10 years old. They're sort of trying to get, I mean, hockey's all about anticipation, you know, the old go where the puck is going, not where it's been. And I think they're trying to impart to uh, children who are at that impressionable age where you're forming your values, you know, here's how, Here's some lessons about how to relate to the world and, and be open and accepting and real and you know take people on on their merits and not on on labels. Uh, the stolen cup, of course, actually you know in, in talk, you know they meet a, a pivotal character out of history is Isabel Stanley who was a big hockey enthusiast, the daughter of Lord Stanley, the creator of the Stanley Cup, but she had a big role in it. So the Stolen Cup kind of touches on the importance of girls and women in building the popularity of hockey in Canada in the early years, like in the late 19th century. And people, you know, girls just didn't start playing hockey in like the 1990s or, you know, 1987 when my sister signed up, my mom signed my sister up for minor hockey. That seems pretty topical for in a 2020 context when you have, you know, the Dream Gap Tour and the Professional Women's Hockey Players Association, you know, take you know members taking on hardship in an effort to convince big sponsors and NHL owners that there's an audience for uh, women's hockey outside of uh, the World Championships and the Olympics. Uh, now, getting to Roy McGregor, of course, we sort of did some cliff notesing of his Wikipedia entry. Uh, we're going to ask about the last season, maybe a little indulgent to ask about a book that was published in 1983, but I, I think it still it still holds up. Uh, and there aren't a lot of hockey novels out there written for adults. Like I posted on a Facebook group, hey, can people like name some hockey novels? Like this is a group Facebook group literally called Hockey Books. And like no one named anything. And I think the only thing I could think of that was like contemporary is by the Swedish writer, Frederick Bachman. Uh, uh, Beartown Town in it, the sequel, Us Against You, is like, James, I Candlelit is huge and hockey is huge in Canada, but the two don't intertwine. Roy actually did enter t- in- intertwine them. So we're, you know, very grateful he could join us today. A writer who writes about hockey from the perspective of it being a culture, as he's put it, more of a cultural phenomenon than an athletic phenomenon, something that's only now really starting to make it into the mainstream coverage in, in Canada. So, you know, glad he could make some time for our
0: program. Bang on, Nate. After the break, Roy McGregor. So my first question, uh, Roy, is why did you come up with the idea and how for the series Ice Chips with your daughter? I guess uh, it's
2: traceable to the previous series that I did called The Screech Owls. And that began in 1995, and there's 29 volumes in that, plus a scrapbook, so 30 books. And it was about a peewee team that uh, kind of solved crimes and played hockey all around the world. A bit far-fetched, but kids seemed to love it. Out in several languages, about 2 million copies sold. And my daughter Carrie had uh, helped me with the final book in the series set in Detroit. So we started thinking after that, what about a series aimed at a slightly younger group? She came up with the idea of a group of kids, you know, maybe eight, nine years old, and uh, call them the ice chips, and they have a magic Zamboni, because kids just love the Zamboni, as you know, (laughs) and this Zamboni is so magical that every time it floods the ice, it takes them back in time when they step across the center line. which allows them, in our imagination anyway, to go back and visit some of the greats in the game, whether it's Gordie Howe or Haley Wekenizer or Sidney Crosby, but visit them when Gordie Howe was eight years old, when Haley was eight years old, when Sidney was eight years old, and hopefully learn a lesson as as they go back.
1: Now, now, Carrie, your daughter, lives in France, I believe, so how does the writing process work between the two of you?
2: Well, maybe it's a good thing that she lives so far away because we'd be bumping heads half the time. (laughs) It's, uh, you know, she can be stubborn, I can be stubborn, but we work it out and we do it all through uh, email. And then at least uh, once a year we get together. Usually she comes over with her family for a month in the summer.
0: Uh, what was what was harder? Uh, and we you just talked about you know going back and there's a young Sidney Crosby, a young Gordie Howe in the book that we the latest one uh, released last month. You know you go back and 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 go back in time to the 1892 Winter Carnival and Isabel Stanley is there. What was harder, the process of nailing down the intricate historical details in a fast-moving narrative like this, or capturing? the current experience of minor hockey, because it's a very contemporary uh, book in that regard.
2: Yeah, well, I really enjoyed the historical part, uh, because it was, you know, every book should teach something, you should learn something when you read a book, so I enjoyed going back to the the origins of the Stanley Cup and Lord Stanley, who was a governor general here in Canada, had a daughter, Isabel, who some people say was the first girl to, to play the game of hockey back in 1892. So I enjoyed that stuff. But as you say, it's also set in modern times and it's, we're trying to deal with some of the uh, modern problems and and the modern nice things about uh, minor league hockey as well. It might be about bullying, it might be about the pleasures of teamwork, friends for life, uh, each one is a lesson. Gordie Howe, for example, came from a very impoverished background, and so it was a nice way to put a lesson in about you don't have to have the best equipment, you don't have to go to the very expensive summer skating schools and that, but a, you can be a kid out in a frozen pond, and you can play the game of hockey and become quite good at
0: it. Roy, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember reading one of your previous works, it might have been a forward to a book, and, and you said something like, uh, you, you you switched over to a composite stick and you still score as many goals as you did with a wooden one. Was that from you? Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, I've said that before. <laughs> yeah. oh,
2: so but I, I mean, to go from buying $2 Hespeler uh, Micmacs and Green Flashes back in when I began that kind of minor hockey at ages 6 to 10 or so, and then uh, now I, I was just up at a store near us and there's a stick, there it's $399 Canadian dollars and it's I don't know what who makes it but it's got a little hole in the middle of it so that you can (laughs) I guess so you can whip the blade faster and there'd be less resistance but it makes no sense who need? what kid needs a $400 stick
0: (laughs) well in this book Lucas Finnegan uh the first book it's established that you know he has hand-me-down equipment right so that's tying into this contemporary narrative that that you guys wrote about, you and your daughter wrote about, um, there's obviously um, a group of kids from different backgrounds, and there's also the villains. Are are the Blitz family seem to be, you know, really focused on the business of minor hockey. So that obviously was a conscious choice by the both of you to 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 include that in this book.
2: Well, I guess it's me because I coached. Uh both a daughter and a son all through minor hockey and you see the good and the bad. I'm a great believer in the game but there's a lot of of bad things about the game that could be repaired. One of them obviously is cost and the other one is that that this is a very difficult one for hockey that while Canada has become so multicultural as the United States you don't see that uh, reflected as well as it should be in hockey.
1: Is that, is that reflected in the title of this, uh, Stolen Cup, because, I mean, Isabel Stanley, is, as you mentioned, is a character, and yeah. and and how much does this uh, sort of give a history lesson that, hey, girls and women were part of this sport from the beginning, but then got pushed out to the margins for, you know, generations, probably until, you know, well into the 1980s, I guess.
2: Yeah, it's true, and, uh, well, of course, I would be Carrie, my daughter. She has the vested interest in that being known, but... Uh, you know, Haley her, for example, helped us with the uh, um, helped us with the book. She gave us ideas to work with, and that. And Haley's a big promoter of women's hockey, and very important in women's hockey. So it was important to us to be able to link with her. And uh, also, you have to remember that it's not just boys reading these books; it's boys and girls. And when I did the street shows, I made the best player a girl. And I heard from so many girls who were so appreciative of that. And yet I had done it not really thinking. I just thought, well, this is something different to do. I didn't realize the import that it would have for them.
0: So would you you mind um, reading uh, from page 78, I believe um, you know where you're going with this, uh, 78 to 80? Yeah, I've got it marked out. Thank you
2: as quickly as they could the ice chips slid off the ice and pushed their way through the crowd until they found somewhere to stand what is this the first hockey game ever played lucas asked jokingly there were referees on the ice but once the game had started it didn't seem to be to be doing a very good job of stopping the players from fighting no francophone players players can fight like that i tell you look at those irishmen go a man standing in front of them shouted he was cheering on the players who were yelling at each other in english as two penalties were finally given he'd obviously been enjoying the fighting but then again he said winking at lucas there ain't many french canadian players of class you know so just as an aside this is the show the rift that was in the country of canada in the 1890s hopefully kids would understand that we're now uh, very much a bilingual country and a bicultural country and so my daughter and I are great believers in that, so we put this in purposely. The game was between the Montreal Victorias, the players with the V's on their sweaters, and the Montreal Hockey Club, whose sweaters were decorated with either flying wheels or bunnies. Neither Edge nor Swift could decide which was which. It was supposed to be a hockey game, but to the Ice Chips, it felt like what they imagined a imagined the night at the opera would be. There were largely fancy sheets draped from the rafters, and the flags hung from above. was of pine trees had been stretched over the ice like garlands. At rink level, people were standing to watch the game, even though there were no, no boards. And on a level above that, in what looked like balcony seats, the spectators were dressed like they were attending a royal dinner. Edge, Edge, over there, Swift said, nudging him with her elbow. She was nodding her head toward a couple who could, in fact, be royalty. They had special seats with the best view of the game. Even their children, several boys and one girl, were attracting attention. At least they seemed to be being admired by the people around them on the upper level. The guy standing in front of the ice chips, the one who didn't like French players, kept calling them foreigners. The Queen's representative is not Canadian, the man explained in a rude tone when he caught Swift giving her, him her best side eye. Not everyone can play this game. The Irish Canadians are wonders, the French are too slow, and the British, well this game is too rough for them, they shouldn't even be here. The man motioned toward the royal family as he said this last sentence, and then a second later, he was cheering on the Victorias once again. That's not true. Everyone can play hockey, Edge thought to himself angrily. Anyone from any country in any background, and French players are some of the greatest. Even the British sometimes have great. The British? That's what Swiss Nudge was telling them. Up on the second level, the royal couple's daughter was transfixed, as though she'd never seen a game of hockey in her life edge could tell that she was falling in love just as he had while the game unfolded before her eyes she was grinning she was cheering but this this was the girl who'd appeared on the ice back in riverton
0: that's great so so wh- why i wanted you to read that is because of, well two reasons first of all uh to explain how detailed the history is in in these books and and also because it, it as you, you know, you you took an aside to explain the context. But I, what I like is I think it appeals to a kid's highest, you know, the highest common denominator for them to to read that and and, and actually wonder, okay, where is this coming from in the way it, it's it's written? You kind of you understand automatically. So that's what I liked about it, and that's why I wanted uh, you to read it. But I wanted to know how you went about uh, getting the, I guess, getting the resources and the research into such detail uh, going back to this time.
2: From uh, libraries, history books, there's a lot written about uh, the uh, Governor General and his family back in the 1890s. Uh, That setting is exactly as it was at the arena that they would go to watch the hockey games in. So that's fun. That's just just research. I like doing it. But you have to tell a story. This story and that man talking there, that's all about bigotry. But I can't use a word like bigotry when I'm writing for seven, eight-year-old kids. I have to explain it without even using the word. But maybe, just maybe, they'll come to understand that you shouldn't talk that way, that you shouldn't think that way. And not only shouldn't you think that way, it's not that way. Edge, for example, has ancestry from East India. Swift is a girl playing hockey. And, and, and there are lots of different cultures involved in the ice chips. So what, that's what our, we're hoping to do, is kind of modernize children's image
0: of the game. The, the acknowledgments in the end explain how you, you got some of the information, for example, with Edge or Ekamjeet is his real name, and he's got the, you know, there's a lot of uh, Punjabi uh, language in there. So how did you go about sourcing out people to help you with to get those details correctly in the, into the book?
2: Well, we have, in Canada, we have Hockey Night in Canada, which is a tradition that goes back decades. And uh, they broadcast in French and in English, the two official languages in Canada. But a couple of years ago, they began hockey broadcasting in Punjabi. Hockey Night and Bajabi and Philly had the announcers on there, and those announcers were quite approachable. Harry did all the the contract work here, and they helped us out hugely. They were just delighted that someone would be writing a hockey book and would talk about their contributions to the game.
1: And uh, how much does that tie into something you've said, that you were drawn to writing about hockey because you view it in Canada as more of a cultural phenomenon than an athletic phenomenon? Well, I
2: don't think you can understand any country without understanding what, what game they most play, most care about. Uh, you, can, you can draw generalizations, of course, but the creativity of Brazilians in, in soccer, the way that uh, Russians have taken to hockey, but uh, also many other sports, the uh, uh, British and their football, which is quite different from, say, the Brazilians and their football, uh, Americans and American football. As you can tell an awful lot about America that way, so i always felt that hockey is just not an entertainment in Canada, it's part of the cultural fiber. And uh, we've had so many books written on it, Ken Dryden and I in fact have written quite a bit about this, how it's, uh, it's so ingrained and so much a part of us that it even forms part of our language. You'll hear in Parliament saying that you're skating on thin ice, or they'll say that you don't want to go to the corners with that guy. Well, that's hockey language that's been transferred right over to our political spectrum. It's, it's there everywhere.
1: <laughs> and, and, and,
2: and, and and other countries do it to their sports as well, as you know.
1: Yeah, And, and sort of taking a bit of a 90-degree turn, uh, what, at one point I think in this novel you know, we have the uh, ice chips having a cross-ice practice that uh, in our episode we did with sean fitzgerald last year he described some of the drama when that was introduced in minor hockey how how much does that tie into just the you know the cultural ho- the that sort of controversy tie into the cultural hold hockey you know exercises on some people's minds and you know their reactions to thing to new things
2: yeah new things well this is the country that produced don cherry don't forget um yeah, Sean is quite right. Uh, there was a real backlash when you had uh, little kids uh, of ages, let's say six, seven, eight and 9, who in terms of body mass might take up 5% of that ice surface, and yet their parents are insisting that their practice involve 100% of that ice surface. It's an absurdity. So many years ago, and I was one of the coaches too, we started doing cross ice practices and maybe having three groups. In each zone you know one group in each zone and even i was over and i studied minor hockey at one point in sweden and i came back there where they use miniature nets so i was able to purchase miniature nets and they were little tiny nets almost as if you'd be playing with a mini stick but i'd let my kids play on a, a smaller ice surface and try to get the puck out of that net so the goaltender was having fun because he had this little net to protect and the kids were having a riot because it was a different thing to do it's, you can be so inventive when you're when you're coaching hockey, and you should reach out and seek out new ideas and try them. But then you go back to what you just talked about. There is, generally speaking, going to be a backlash. You have to really ignore some of the parents. Most parents are quite good, but every, every hockey group I've ever been involved with is always some parents you'd kind of rather wish weren't in the arena, if I may say it that way. <laughs> you just have to do it.
0: Uh, Roy, you have a couple of actor, actor credits uh, to your name, possibly more, uh, two that I know about. Um, I was wondering, have you uh, thought about turning this series uh, into a cartoon at all?
2: I wish that, uh, that would happen. I haven't thought about it, but I'm hoping somebody would. When they did the Street shows, they, uh, a company in Toronto purchased the rights to the series and produced uh, two seasons of the Street shows. Now, what happened there was these kids are 10, 11, and 12. And so when they at the end of the second season, especially the girls, they looked like grown-ups. Mm. And they, they kind of grew out of the roles the beauty of cartoons, as Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse have shown us for decades, is you never have to grow older, you never have to grow bigger. So I would much prefer to see a cartoon done with this.
0: Um, have there been any talks yet? No? No, nothing. Okay. No. Um, so... Um, You mentioned the political arena uh, a couple of questions ago. I want to ask you, um, just shifting away from this book in particular, um, can you travel back with us and for our listeners, explain to them how you ended up becoming a writer, and specifically sports. The reason I bring up the political arena is I believe you were covering Parliament, were you not?
1: Yes, I was.
2: I covered Parliament for 14 years, 1978 to 1992, and in 1992, uh, that was when the Ottawa Senators had their franchise and started playing in the National Hockey League. I was working here in Ottawa, and I worked for the Ottawa Citizen. And uh, we were parking downtown was getting expensive, and we were having arguments back and forth about who should be paying for this and where, because Parliament Hill had been providing free parking for the media, and suddenly the uh, press were on their high horses saying, we shouldn't accept free parking, we should pay for our own. And our argument was, well, if you're gonna go that way, that's fine, but we want our newspaper to pay for it, we don't wanna pay for it ourselves. (laughs) So the editor of the newspaper invited me to lunch, and he opened it up, first of all, he ordered a beer for each of us, and then he said, I've solved your parking problem. I said, oh, you have thanks, thinking that he was about to offer me you know, free parking, or they would pay for it. He said, from now on, you're parking at the Civic Center. And I looked at him, I said, what are you talking about? He said, I want you to start covering the Senators.
0: How was the shift for you then? Um, for What were the similarities between the political arena and the hockey arena? Or well, the differences?
2: They're, they're almost exactly the same, except that the hockey players have numbers on their back. <laughs> the same BS goes on, the same grandstanding goes on, the same kind of scorekeeping goes on. The same kind of never answering a, answering a question properly goes on. I and mean, if you've ever been in a scrum in a hockey dressing room in the last 10 years, you know what I'm talking about.
0: I think both me and Nate can attest to that. Nate, go ahead. Yeah. Every every time I'm like like at the gym and
1: and see like a you know coach's post game availability, I'm like that's just like politics and. Why are we? And I'm always like, and why are we giving this guy this platform? Uh, right on. <laughs> now, one one thing I did want to touch on from from before you became went into sports at the Citizen was a book that's you know near and dear to my heart. It's it's you published in 1983 a novel called The Last Season. Uh, I understand it didn't start out with hockey at its core, but how did you end up getting to that point?
2: I, uh, I wanted to write about the Polish experience in Canada where I grew up or where I came from. There's an awful lot of Poles that settled there and some married into my family and that. So I was very intrigued by this in central Ontario. I started writing uh, my main character who I called Felix Badarinsky. I uh, had him as a executive assistant to a senator here in Ottawa. And it was not working out. And then that, that old cliche, you should write what you know. And I started thinking about, well, what do I know? I've played hockey all my life. I had by sheer fluke, I grew up playing against Bobby Orr because we're exactly the same age and our towns were about an hour apart from each other. So our town played his town all the time. We never won, <laughs> but uh, I was able to write about what it felt like to play against Bobby Orr. And also in 1981, I'd gone to Finland with a group of old timers. Uh, Finnair was trying to introduce kind of beer league hockey trips to uh, Finland. We got over there Uh, It was a team out of Toronto, they called themselves the Toronto Maple Leaves, L-E-A-V-E-S, which they thought was cute and smart, but it didn't translate properly. The people in Finland thought it was the ex-Leafs coming over to play, and they filled the stadiums, they had three periods and floods in between, and sold tickets, and we were dreadful and got absolutely trounced. But I had that experience to draw from too. I knew knew what it was like to play on the big ice surface and what it was like to play hockey in Finland.
1: Uh, Didn't you score a hat trick on that tour?
2: How did you know that?
1: Uh, you wrote about it in home game. Oh, yeah, I did too. Yeah, well, the third
2: goal came because it was right after the uh, the flood between the second and the third period. And you know how when you start to play hockey, uh, right away sometimes there's sticky spots in the ice. And a defenseman came rushing off the ice, and he was going to fly through our whole team and score yet another goal. But it stuck in the ice, and I was going the other direction. I picked it up and went in, and uh, I, I put it into the net. But I... I don't even know. I'd, I'll tell this other story. It's a little uncomfortable telling it, but it's true. Uh, we had noticed in the warm-up that the, as one of our guys in the team said, he's got no glove hand, you know. So go high in the glove. And all three of my goals, I went high in the glove. And then we, at the end of the game, they'd won handily. We shook hands. And as I went through the line, I had my hand out, and it came to the goalie. I put my right hand out, and he put his left hand out, and he took my left hand, and I realized he did not actually have a hand.
1: <laughs> so it,
2: it doesn't. It, it literally didn't have a glove hand.
0: Wow!
1: Yeah, that, I mean that's that's quite something too. You think now with uh, so many athletes, uh, how big the Paralympics are now? Like athletes like Orly Rivard, are a great para <laughs> swimmer, and
0: and, and uh, how the success she's had. And not just that, Swift in this in the ice chips. Has a prosthetic leg, does she not, Roy?
2: Yes, yes, that was my daughter's idea, Carrie, I thought that was needed. And she then went to a family, she knew of a family in town that has a a boy who's playing with a prosthetic leg, and we went and visited them, and he showed us exactly how he works, how it works in hockey, and uh, he he was quite excited about it. And he's become quite a good little player, so we really modeled her on him uh, in terms of the
1: prosthetic leg. And then one other question that's sort of come up come up to mind every time I reread the last season, there was a sports writer character named Matt Keening, and uh, yeah. his diction really reminded me of your friend and colleague, the late, great Earl McCrae. Now, please <laughs> tell me if I am just imagining things.
2: No, no, you're not. <laughs> Earl of pearl I miss him terribly.
1: Yeah, as, as do I add the be... Good fortune to work with him in the in the la- in last few years years of his life. How do you just one last question about that book? How how do you sort of relate to it now? Uh, I guess more than thirty five years later was I know it, I think you've described it as having a bit of a cultish shelf life. I have it on my Kindle Kindle app on my phone and yeah, look at it constantly. It
2: only has a cultish life. I've never had a, another life. It's uh, it's it's weird. I run into people. I've run into a number of people who claim the book is about them. And, uh, you know, they had minor careers in Europe and that, and I had to dissuade them of, of that. But, I don't know, people who liked it liked it a lot, and not too many people bought it. But uh, I'm very, very proud of it and very happy and very glad that I switched it over to hockey from politics.
0: Speaking of, like, marketability, I mean, when you want to put out a book now, I'm imagining it's, it's probably a pretty short conversation with a publishing house, I mean, just given your stature in this country.
2: I'd like to think so, but things have gotten tighter and tighter, and I, I'm going back and forth right now with uh, publishers about an idea, and uh, I, I, there it, it doesn't seem to be a, a rush to embrace. It's like everything's wary, and they keep talking about how you know, markets are difficult these, these years, so we'll see. I, I mean, the children's books are fun, and I don't lie awake nights worrying about them and all, but I do actually, now that I'm so-called retired, which I don't much care for, I'd like to be going on some larger project.
0: Is there uh, anything particular you would could share with us, or is it all kind of um, undercover right now until a deal is no, signed? No, not
2: undercover. My daughter, one, one daughter says that I should write a book about retirement, <laughs> <laughs> and I think she's right, because I, so I started looking at books on retirements, and almost invariably they're about uh, money and about investing. Right. I think if somebody needs to write a book about the psychology of retirement, in fact, the history of retirement, who come up with this idea?
0: Yeah, wow. Um, I I want to know in terms, of, you know, you've you've been a, a you know a prolific writer, reporter. How have the new mediums affected the message of journalism? In the sense of, there's so many different ways to tell a story now. How has that affected the art? Meaning. You know, you have, a, you have reporters who have Twitter before they write, you know, tweeting out stuff before they write their article uh, that would go, you know, online digitally. Um, so how have the mediums affected the message?
2: Well, I think, uh, but, you know, I'm going to be showing my age here, I think, to a great detriment. It's been a, a terrible thing that uh, I have been saying for some time now that uh, what hockey in particular desperately is in need of is a hockey outsider. <laughs> Not, they have all these hockey insiders, but a hockey insider has turned news, and this is what passes for news now, is how a contract breaks down. Most of us could care less how a contract breaks down, but that's become the obsessive part of, of reporting news now. Who might be traded, and how does a contract break down? Where are the people who will tell me how the game is being played, or why it's being played like it's being played? Have you noticed in the last few years that every power play now comes up the ice, if somebody carries the puck up the ice and then passes it back his own? Hmm. Yeah, the the, old, the
1: drop what? pass at the blue line.
2: What's that for? <laughs> well, who are they fooling? Who came up with that? And why does everybody do it? <laughs> Nobody talks about these things at all. Uh, we're not hearing enough about concussion. We're not hearing enough about fighting. Uh, hopefully against it. Uh, we're not hearing people who are willing to take on the NHL because what's become news in hockey has become distributed by the NHL and that is who gets traded, what a contract breaks down and the trivia, to me the tri- trivia of the sport I want to know the meat and potatoes of the sport and we're not getting too much of that.
0: And aside from that nuts and bolts stuff, how about how about the art of, of the long form piece? Uh, do you think I mean, you, you look at Publications like The Athletic and even to some degree Sportsnet has a pretty good long form um, element but do you think that uh, maybe these quick hitter new age ways of, of communicating uh, from the reporter to the public have uh, taken away from the, the art of writing? Oh yes
2: because uh, most of these groups and I, I'll just say all of them for the sake of argument measure their success in terms of hits and and uh, you will you can take the most magnificent long form piece of journalism and there are lots of them out there believe me and just stack them up against a quick uh, little piece that is about an injury or is about uh, a possible scandal or is about uh, a coach going off the deep end and you'll see that the hits are incomparable so that the popularity of the quick hit and the sensational hit so supersedes the import and the gravity of this great long read that those who were crunching the numbers and deciding what works and what doesn't work are going to go every time for the quick hit and that's wrong
1: yeah where do, where does that start to change where does that start to change like how do how, you say there's a you know the, there is obviously a crying need for a hockey outsider but how does how does one get started in doing that and i don't know i <laughs>
2: i i, I gotta say that it, though I didn't think it would work the athletic seems to be working quite well and they're doing some very good good, good work, you mentioned Sean Fitzgerald a few moments ago and he's doing some long read stuff and so are others so maybe they will be able to do it I hope so Is there there's a- still, still some good newspaper work done, there's still some good magazine work done of course, and there's some really good uh, work done on uh, kind of mini documentaries by the sports channels but uh, still not enough
0: for me are there any um current uh writers that you're that you kind of follow in canada that that you enjoy you know reading their work uh, we talked about sean and his in his book he was on the podcast talking about uh, his book about minor hockey but yes please go ahead yeah well
2: you know cam cole isn't writing much anymore but i follow him on twitter because i think he's good uh i miss people like al Stracken and and uh Cam and that but you know I still get to read say Mark Spector, Eric Duhatchik Sean Fitzgerald we just mentioned Earl McRae we terribly miss Uh, Jack Todd writes writes some very controversial and tough columns in Montreal Uh, Wayne Scanlon's doing some lovely work here now for Sportsnet Uh, Bruce Garriok I follow and the boys around here Uh, there's some excellent young women writers now for the Athletic, Uh, we miss Christy Blackford terribly because when she took her pen to sports. She was absolutely wonderful at it. Um, there's a lot of good people out there. And, you know, you still have people like Stephen Brunt doing beautiful work, but it's now done in visual right. uh, for television. But it's still, the words are beautiful.
0: Um, yeah, he does make excellent features. Um, you know, I just got to uh, quickly ask you before we close out, I, 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 I've heard that Al Strachan's got a new book coming out called The Hot Stove in November. We're looking to have him on. Um, have you? Um, are you looking forward to that one? Had you, had you heard about that one?
2: Oh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I wonder if you'll be mention, mentioning Berkey at all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, well, listen, Roy, um, is there anything you would like to add uh, before we close out here today on Sports Lit?
2: No, I'd just like to say that how appreciative my daughter and I are that that uh, you're a, a program that aims at grown-ups, let's say, and... Uh, for you to pay attention to uh, books aimed at children with somewhat grown-up messages, it's great, I and mean, we sure appreciate it, and thank you for that.
0: Thank you, Roy and Nate. Yes, thank you so much, Roy. I know thanks, i guys. just got to quickly speak for Nate here. I know how he's been talking about your books forever, so I know it's a big day for him especially, so thanks again for taking the time to speak with Yay, us.
1: Nate. Yay, Nate! Nate! <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks, thanks. guys.